Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church Podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel and Evangelism Sermon Series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the great privilege that you've given us to come and to worship you tonight in song, in fellowship, and in your word. We pray, God, that as your word goes forth, that you would help us to be more equipped to defend the faith, more encouraged, God, to share the gospel. And Lord, help us to be emboldened by your spirit to share this great news that saves sinners from the wrath of God. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is the the 14th week in this series, and we do pray that you have been greatly edified and challenged and encouraged over the past 14 weeks. Last week we talked about contact evangelism. I was very encouraged to go into the youth for just a few minutes and hear how they were discussing this great issue or this great topic of contact evangelism. Also, it is called spontaneous evangelism. We were given some helpful suggestions for when we share the gospel with complete strangers. Tonight, we are going to look at the subject of apologetics. If you're taking notes, we are going to be looking at the subject of apologetics. We intentionally made this subject, apologetics, the last in our series. And there's a reason why. Because for many people, especially myself, the first area that I jumped into when the Lord first saved me was apologetics. When the Lord first saved me, I began on this journey of attempting to acquire all of the knowledge that I could about every other religion and worldview, listen, without ever really understanding the gospel. So I attempted to dive into all of these different world religions and all of these different worldviews without really understanding the gospel. And as we have been hearing over the past 14 weeks, we have learned the gospel. We have learned a, a simple way to explain the gospel. I was encouraged by one of the brothers who was speaking to a pastor, no less. And the individual, the pastor said to him, actually the, the individual asked the pastor, can you tell me what the gospel is? And the individual who was a pastor could not answer the question. And the answer that he gave was obviously not the full gospel. It was something uh, shallow in comparison to what this brother gave that person in his explanation of the gospel. I am encouraged that you are hopefully learning the gospel yourself and that when you talk to people, you have a one you have one pressing question that you want to ask them. What is the gospel? And not because you want to show off how much, you know, because you really are, are a lover of God and a lover of people and you want the gospel to be spread. So back to my mistake. I began a journey of acquiring all the knowledge that I could without understanding the gospel. And I would not say that that journey that I took, the Lord that, that the Lord took me on was a waste of time trying to understand all those things. But it, I would definitely, if I could go back, get a good handle on the gospel before I learned any of the other things that the Lord led me to learn during that 15 year period, maybe 14 year period. 
That's why we spent five weeks understanding the gospel. That's why we've spent the last nine weeks trying to explain what real evangelism is. So that you would not jump into something before you kind of understood the foundation of your faith, which is, again, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, as we discuss briefly, let me say, and I'll say this again at the end, this is not an extended study on the subject of apologetics. This is merely going to be some kind of introduction, as it were, into apologetics. So I encourage you, do not take what you learn tonight as your end-all, be-all to the discussion of apologetics. But rather, let this simply be an introduction for you, and I pray that the Lord takes you on your own journey to understand and to learn how you can better reach people of different worldviews and different religions. Apologetics, the word simply means to give a defense or to give a reason. Again, apologetics simply means to give a defense or to give a reason. Many people use 1 Peter chapter 3.15 as the hallmark scripture for apologetics, which says this, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Apologetics means to give a defense. The Bible encourages us to always be ready to give a defense or an apologia, a defense for the gospel or for the hope that we have within us. Now, when would we use apologetics or when would we need to give a defense? Who would want to question us, right? Who would want to question us? In an age when anything goes and no one is supposed to be questioned for anything that they would do, anything that they would believe, who in the world would ever question you about your faith and about what you believe? Friends, believe it or not, there is only one belief that experiences questions Only one belief that experiences persecutions and only one belief, one faith that experiences hostility. And that belief is the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins unto salvation. You, more than any other religion, will be questioned for your faith, about your faith. You, more than any other worldview and more than any other belief, will be questioned about your belief. So you must be ready. If you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then my friend, I urge you, I urge you to be ready to defend your faith. The Apostle Peter urges you, be ready to defend your faith. But will you be ready to defend your faith? If you are sharing your faith, you will be. You will only be willing to defend your faith if you are sharing your faith. Does that make sense? There's no need for defense if there's no sharing. If you're not sharing, then why defend it? No one will ever know. You might be a closet Christian and you might get away with that. I doubt it. But there's no need for apologia if there is no evangelism or gospeling. So, my friends, I encourage you. Do not keep the faith that Christ has given you under a lampshade, but rather open it up and let the world see the light that Christ has put in you for the glory of God. 
It is only when you remove that lampshade that people will become annoyed at the light that you have shining within you. Because your light is exposing their darkness. And they are going to inevitably ask you to either tone down your light or why does your light shine so bright? What gives you the audacity to shine this light? And I encourage you to be ready. I encourage you to be ready to give a reason for the light, the hope that is within you. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, be vigilant in sharing your faith and be prepared to defend your faith. Now, who will you most likely run into? Oh, gosh, there is a a a buffet, if you will, of people that you will run into. People of all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different beliefs. You will run into them all. And so tonight we are going to just speak to one specific or two specific, and that is going to be atheists or agnostics. What would I do if I was to run into or have a discussion with an atheist or an agnostic? Let me encourage you that when you speak to them, hopefully the beginning of your conversation has began with the gospel. That's where we hope this begins. Now, obviously, things don't work out perfectly all the time. So you may not be able to immediately jump into the gospel. You may find yourself fighting through a discussion or fighting through a conversation in order to get to that place. And many times you will run into people who will say that they're believers, but obviously are not. You run into people that say that they believe in God, but they speak like they do not. And then there are those who will say, I don't believe in God. So let's deal with the first atheist. Let me say that there are many different kinds of atheists. But the word atheist simply means ah, which means no, and theist, which means God. No God. Ah, theist. A theist, meaning no God. And let me be honest with you, they're very interesting people. They are very interesting people. They are usually, usually very learned on what science explains concerning the existence of humanity and the cosmos. Cosmos meaning the universe itself. They are, there are also those who are called agnostics. These are people with, uh, ag, or ah, meaning no, nos, agnos, 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 meaning no knowledge. They would say about themselves that they do not have enough knowledge or information to know whether or not there is a God. Now, let me slow down before you, you let these things pass through you. Again, this is a very simplistic introduction to Atheist and agnosticism. Do not let these big words go over your head and then you tune out. Amen? Amen. Now, one may sound very dangerous versus the other who sounds kind of harmless. The dangerous one you would probably think is the atheist who believes firmly that there is no God. And the harmless one you may believe is the agnostic who simply doesn't know. And who can blame an agnostic for not knowing, correct? But both of them are dangerous. And both of them are suppressing the truth. And we are going to treat both of them the same tonight. Because God has revealed himself. So for anyone to say there is no, or for anyone to say I don't know, would be obviously violating what God has clearly revealed to them, which is himself. So, what approach would we take if we were speaking to an atheist? We're going to give three different directions that you can take. 
Let's let's deal with the first one. Number one, you could speak to them about the moral argument. So when you're in a conversation with a, a, an atheist and you could ask them a question like this. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that murder is wrong? Sometimes they're going to say depends. Sometimes they're going to say yes. Sometimes they're going to say no. For the most part, most of the people that I have run into who are atheists will usually say yes. If they say yes, you got them. If they say no, then you've got to have to work a little bit more. Ask them, do you believe lying is wrong? They may say, well, it depends on what the lie is, right? You may ask them, okay, so if they're being elusive, you might ask them another question. Do you believe stealing is wrong? What well, depends on when, when you need to steal, right? Try to get them at least on a particular yes or no. Let me just tell you real quick, atheists don't believe in any, any absolutes. They don't believe if they are a good atheist and they hold to their worldview. Now, let me say this real quick. A worldview is a particular understanding of how the world works and how people function. So when I say atheists have a worldview, this is what they believe about how the world works. Does that make sense? And for you, you have a biblical or a Christian worldview, which comes from this source. So this is how you see the world and how it works. Does that make sense? So you, what you have here is two worldviews colliding. You have a worldview that says nothing matters and everything is uh, unimportant. Everything is random. Nothing is is caused. And then you have someone who says everything is important. Is important. Everything is caused because there is a causer, God. Am I losing you? Okay, good. Praise God. Let's slow down a little bit. So when you speak to an atheist, you have two colliding worldviews. And what you want to do is try to have a conversation that lets them know that, that their worldview is not much different than yours, even though they claim it is. Does that make sense? And how do you do that? You want to find out there are some absolutes. Do you love your mother? Where do you get the word love from? And why do you love your mother? Do you believe, again, murder is wrong? Why do you believe murder is wrong? The Bible says, and I'll tell you why. The Bible says in First Corinthians, or not First Corinthians, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. It is God who's created who? All of us. And God has created man, you and I, in his image. We have been formed in the image of God, and we have been made with communicable attributes of God. That is love, kindness, goodness. All of these things are things that God has encoded into our DNA, into who we are. As creatures made in the image of God, we are image bearers, every single one of us. God has created us as moral people with moral absolutes. This is morally wrong. This is morally right. God has wired us in such a way that we understand murder, stealing, lying, cheating, adultery, envy, and all of those other things are wrong. For So for someone to say they're not wrong, they would be lying not only to God, but to themselves. Of course they know it was wrong. So let's take it deeper. You think that murder is wrong or is not okay? If you talk to someone and they say, murder could be wrong. Let me ask you a question. What if I murdered your mother? Oh, now it's wrong. Why? Because now it, it personally applies to you. Stealing is wrong. If stealing is not wrong. Depends. Well, how about if I st- want to steal your jacket right now? 
Would you say that was wrong? Would you say I was violating you? Well, why is violating even matter if nothing matters? Does that make sense? So you have to get them to a place where, yeah, things do matter. We're not just protoplasm uh, bags that are bumping into each other and nothing matters. We do matter. There is purpose in the world. Every country in the world has laws against these things, against lying, against cheating, against stealing, against uh, murder. Why? Because God has revealed himself to humanity in such a way that all of humanity... Even those in the jungles will cut off your arms if you're stealing something. How do they know that when they don't have the scriptures? Because God has wired them in such a way to know moral right and moral wrong or moral absolutes. So when you're speaking to someone who is an atheist, get to this point. He has written his law on our hearts and on our minds as image bearers, those who are created in his image. Paul speaks about the Gentiles in Romans. He says, Though they did not have the law of God among them, and though it was not taught to them, listen, they lived in such a way that it proved that God had written his law on their hearts. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what he says. Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, listen to this, do instinctively, instinctively, the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In, the, in that, they show that the work of the law written on, in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing them or else defending them. Going back to that, the meaning of that, the Gentiles did not have the law present, yet they lived as if the law was present. Why? They were doing Exactly what they were created to do, to live in such a way that showed that there were moral absolutes, moral rights and moral wrongs. And in doing so, they proved that God's law is real because they lived according to it, even though they did not have it. So when speaking to an atheist, it is important that you point out that although they say there is no God, listen, they live like there is a God. Although they say there is no God, listen, they live like there is no God, like there is a God. Because they obviously, unless they're just completely depraved, um, in the sense that they are as bad as they can be, they don't walk around lying to everyone. Because as, as they're having a conversation with you, are they telling the truth to you? They're telling you what they honestly believe, right? They're not lying to you and telling you what you want to hear, are they? Why are they telling you the truth? Why does truth even matter? Are you getting the point of this? So they're stealing from your biblical worldview in order to live their lives. In such a way that they say your biblical worldview does not exist, but mine does. But you're borrowing from my world so that you can live. If it doesn't matter, then let's go, let's go rob a bank. Actually, you go rob a bank. Not let's. You go rob a bank, Right? If it doesn't matter, then then do whatever you please. But it does matter. You're living like a Christian, even though you claim to be an atheist. Why is lying wrong? You know it's wrong. They say because that they think that lying is messed up. You shouldn't lie. I've had many, many conversations like that. Why is lying wrong? It's just messed up. You shouldn't do that. Why not? 
Why does it even matter if you lie to someone? Why does it even matter if you steal from someone? You may say it's messed up, but what makes it messed up if you don't believe that anything's messed up? Nothing matters. Brothers and sisters, they know what's right and they know what's wrong. Paul says, actually, in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress means to smother or to squash or to stamp out or to conceal. But the truth cannot be concealed. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident to them, for God made it evident to them. They can't say there is none because God made it clear to them. So when speaking to an atheist, you can waste your time talking about different formulas. You can waste your time talking about different theories. But there is something that they cannot deny. That they live like a Christian while at the same time they claim to be an atheist. That's called... I don't even know what it's called. I just call it the moral argument because they are living as if their lives have moral absolutes, but they are claiming with their mouth that there is none. Secondly, the reliability of the Bible. This is something that I've ran into with all sorts of different peoples from Jehovah's Witnesses. Actually, not so much them, but sometimes. But Muslims to atheists. One of the things that you will inevitably run into is a defense of your Bible. Let me ask you a question real quick. If someone was to ask you, defend the reliability of your Bible, don't answer out loud. What would you say to them? Let it set in. How would you answer that? How would you answer, your Bible is not reliable? What would you say? More often than none, atheists will go after that question. Because they believe it is the, the chink in our armor, if you will. Or the, the weakest part of us as believers. Interestingly enough, though, this book has withstood 2,000 years of scrutiny. And it has never been defeated. So how would you defend your Bible? Let me give you at least, I think, seven or eight ways that you would defend your Bible. Number one, if you're taking notes, manuscript evidence. What we have here in the scriptures is a collection of manuscripts. Manuscripts are documents, documents that are written by the, written by those who have copied. And I don't think we have any originals, but we have copies of the originals. So of the copies that we have, there are five thousand eight hundred and, and, and numbers are good. And you can throw numbers out because that just befuddles people, right? Five thousand eight hundred Greek manuscripts. That have been accounted for. That is overwhelming when it comes to the collection of manuscripts that we have gathered from the Greek language. So the original writers in the New Testament wrote the Bible in Greek. Those who trans those who copied that test, those who copied those manuscripts also copied it in Greek of those copies of the copy of the original. We have five thousand eight hundred. And guess what? When we put those manuscripts together. They coincide or they corroborate what we have written here in these scriptures, which tells us we have a pretty good copy of the original. Let me say one other thing about that. Those Greek manuscripts were gathered from all over the East. That is the Middle East. They were not in one particular place, but they were scattered. And as all of these different manuscripts were gathered together. One of the things that they found was, although they were scattered in different areas, they all said the same thing. So we have uncontrolled copies 
all cooperating and saying the same thing, which is great. Which means you have someone over here who's making a copy, and someone over there who's making a copy. And this person over here is not telling this person what to say. They're both in different places, and they're both saying the same thing. That is great reliability for your scriptures, brothers and sisters. That is great reliability. As a matter of fact, I might even just walk away from someone before I tell them the wrath of God is upon them and they don't repent and turn from their sins, right? 10,000 Latin copies of the New Testament from the 2nd century to the 16th century. We have all of that gathered. As a matter of fact, if you take all of the languages that the Bible has been gathered in, 25,000 copies we have. And they all say the same thing. That's huge. That is enormous. That should make you walk around like this with your Bible up. Who wants to test me? Who wants to test me? I got numbers for you. Why does this matter? Again, uncontrolled. And yet they all say the same thing. The Bible, as they say, is 99, what we have here, is 99.9% accurate to what the, the original most likely said. And those that 0.1% is only words that have no impact on any major doctrine whatsoever. Does that make sense? So when we say 99.9%, you might have a the, where there should be a, a, a two, or whatever. But there is no impact on any major doctrine that we have in our scriptures. That's huge. Number two, archaeological evidence. So number one, we have manuscript evidence. Number two, this is all evidence. These are not proofs, but these are evidences, right? Archaeological evidence. <clears throat> the more that archaeologists dig, the more they confirm that the Bible is reliable. The city that the Bible says in the Bible actually exists. The people that were in the Bible actually exist. The events that took place in the Bible, archaeologists dig it up and say, hey, this is actually the place where the Bible says, and here's a war here. Does that make sense? So we've got archaeological evidence. Number three, eyewitness evidence. The Bible was written by those who witnessed the events it describes. They were persecuted for their faith. They were martyred for their faith, and yet they never changed their story. You ever think about that? You have a man like the Apostle Paul, who is persecuting the church. And then according to Paul, he sees Christ, the risen Christ, and he doesn't deny that Christ appeared to him. Rather, he changes his entire life to the point where his head is chopped off for the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. You imagine that? Going from country to country, from place to place, being chased out of every single town that he goes into. For what? A lie? Would you allow yourself to be chased out of town to town for a lie? No, of course not. And what happened to all the other apostles? Every single one of them, save John the Apostle, all died for their faith. And through the centuries, there were so many who gave up their life because they were not willing to recount the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's huge. That's huge. Here's some other things. Cooperating evidences, which means extra biblical evidence. That's another point for you. Extra biblical evidence. That means... People that are not in the scriptures, non-biblical sources that describe the events of the Bible. One of them is the great historian, Jewish historian Josephus, who describes the life, the miracles, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the big thing. He wasn't even a believer. That's huge. He has nothing to gain. He's not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet he does not deny his life, his miracles, his death. 
and his resurrection. Josephus is huge for us believers. There is another man by the name of Pliny the Younger and Pliny the Older who both corroborate the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another one for you. Literary, or literary consistency. Someone may say that there are, are, are a bunch of uh, contradictions in the scriptures. But I challenge you. If someone says there's a contradiction in the scripture, tell them to go and at least pick out, if there's so many, give me 50. Give me 50 contradictions. If there's so many of them, or find as many as you can. And will you be willing to walk with me through those contradictions and see if they are so? I challenge you to do that. How many of you know anybody that says the Bible's full of contradictions? Oh, gosh. So go to them. So last time we talked, you said the Bible's full of contradictions. Let's, let's go through some of those. Why don't you go and get at least ten? At least ten. And then let's walk through them together and let's see if they're a contradiction or not. But you better be ready for that. Right? Here's another one for you. Prophetic evidence. There are over 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. What does that say about the scriptures? The scriptures knows the past, and it was the present, and it knows the future. Amen. It's more accurate than Nostradamus. Or Miss Cleo, those of you who go back that far. I don't know what she's doing now. You remember Miss Cleo, the Jamaican lady? That's big. 300 specific, not vague prophecies, but specific prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 300. What are the odds of that? The odds of that are taking a coin, marking it, throwing it in the state of Texas, filling then Texas with coins up to three feet high. The odds of Christ fulfilling all of those prophecies would be the odds of you finding that one coin in Texas. That's how it would be the odds of you winning the Powerball. Let's make that more modern for you. How's that? You ain't going to win. <laughs> you ain't going to win. Sorry. Next, historical evidence. Again, people in the Bible are people that actually existed. Places in the Bible are places that actually existed. Events in the Bible are events that actually took place. It's all there. This is not the Book of Mormon. This is not Lehi and Mehi. These are real people who actually exist. You can't find a Mehi and a Lehi. You go to South America and they'll say, we don't know no Mehi or Lehi. You're laughing about that, but that's absolutely true. There is no place. You go to New York where they say that there was a great battle that took place, where millions of people died. You go to that place, there is not one single spear or spike or sword or one single chink of anybody's armor that was ever found in a place where millions of people supposedly died. And it's a place where that has been conserved by the state of New York because of the Church of, of Mormon, the book, of Church of Mormon, and nothing ever happened there. No one can ever find anything there. And they refuse to allow archaeologists to come in and excavate it. Why? Because it would disprove everything in their little book. We could go through all the different religions, but there's no need to. Last one. Christ. The life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our final evidence. Jesus actually, if you find any atheist who says Jesus was not a real person, just walk away from them. 
How many will talk to you? I mean, this is history, brother. We're not talking about Mickey Mouse. We're talking about a real human being, right? Real human being who actually lived. Jesus lived. Jesus also died. Here's a big one. And Jesus rose from the dead. And we have over 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. And we have martyrs who gave up their life because they saw the risen Christ. Now, is it proof? No. But it sure is a lot of evidence. It sure is a lot of evidence. Amen? I think I'm going to say the last one for atheists, which is this. They live like they're believers. And I already said this before, but I I just got to keep digging down on this. They live like they are atheists. And here's the thing. When they stand before God, they will be without, as the Bible says in, in the Greek, they will be without anapologatos. They would be without excuse. So we are making a defense, apologetics, apologia. When they stand before God, they will have no anapologatos. No defense. The Bible says in Romans 1.20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Don't feel, listen, like when you're sharing the gospel, that you have to know everything before you share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you will never know everything. Never know everything. You might know some things, but you are never going to know everything. And what would you rather have? Would you rather have all knowledge or obedience? My dear friends, pursue understanding. But do not think that you must have perfect understanding before you can obey God's command to share the gospel. Obey. And I, I would love and can't wait to hear the stories of the different people that you encounter, the different beliefs that you encounter, the different things that you don't know. This is great. And there will be one thing that you find in common with every single person that you come in contact with. And it is this. They have every single one of them need the gospel. That every single one of them are in need of Christ. And you might not know everything. But here's what you do know. That they need to repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation or they will be faced with the wrath of God on the day of judgment. So you might not know everything about sciences. You might not know everything about uh, atheists and agnostics. But here's what you do know. That faith alone in Christ saves. Here's what you do know. That you must repent and turn to him alone for your salvation. So don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't be hesitant to share your faith. Because what you know is much greater than what they know. And what you know is where to find bread from heaven and eternal water. So although they may sound or look like they're full, they are desperately in need of what you have. They need the gospel. And your goal should always be share the gospel. Although it might be a struggle to get there, it should always be share the gospel. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to get to that point. And I pray that when you're evangelizing, that you will not merely again take tonight's short lesson as your end-all, be-all to apologetics, but that you would go on your own journey and that you would learn as much as you can so that you can be equipped to defend your faith. 
But you better know more about your faith than their faith. Because this is the only one that saves. Which leads me to our next person that you might run into. People of other religions or world religions. There is one thing in common with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Hinduists, uh, gosh, on and on and on. And, and there's probably thousands upon thousands of religions. Here's, here's the one thing that they all have in common. Every single one of them are a righteous, works righteous based religion. Meaning this, they center on working and earning their place in a celestial paradise. Every single one of them, without exception. Now, there are those who just believe that you're going to get reincarnated until you eventually reach nirvana. There are those who don't believe that anything's going to happen, that you're just going to die. But for the most part, all of them are believing that you must work to achieve something. And that it's up to you. I could give you an overview of all of those religions, probably not all of them, but the main ones. But that would be a study that would never end. We could be here for the rest of the Wednesdays, for the rest of your life and mine, however the Lord tarries, talking about all of these different religions and what they believe and why they believe it and where they came from. And here's what you're going to find out about all of those religions. They are all working for their salvation. Biblical Christianity, your belief, your faith, I pray, is the only religion that says this. For it is by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by work so that no one can boast. This is the only religion. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion that says this. You can't do it. You will never be good enough. You will never be strong enough. You will never be righteous enough. It will only come from the righteousness of another. The Lord Jesus Christ imputing or giving his righteousness to you to take away your unrighteousness. That is the only way that we believe that one can be saved. All other religions say, no, you can try your best. You can do your best. If you work hard and if you repent of sin, as the Muslims will say, they will say, I just work hard. And when I fail, I repent and he forgives me and I keep on working. You're still working. You're still trying. You're still earning. It's still up to you. When you are sharing the gospel with people of other religions, there are two things that you should bring up. How are you saved? Ask them that. How are you saved? Because that inevitably inevitably will take you to the gospel. Here's how you are saved. Ask them that. Ask them how you are saved. I encourage you to get to the gospel. Share with them the five solas. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. And scripture alone. Share with them that thing. They, they, They will not be offended if you ask them how are you saved. But rather they will be exposed and their works will be exposed. And we must respond when they say, I, I do the best that I can. And you've heard this before. I try to treat people nice. You hear people who say that they're believers who, who talk like this. Believers in Christ who say, I do the best that I can. I try to treat everybody nice. I believe that in the end, God's going to see how good I did. So-called biblical Christians who are even now working for their salvation. That's not biblical Christianity. And they can't truly call themselves trusting in Christ alone for their salvation that they're saying, I'm working, I'm doing the best I can, rather than I have trusted that my sins have been placed upon the shoulders of Christ and he has accomplished for me what I could not accomplish for myself. That sounds like a biblical Christian. 
So when people come to you and say, I'm trying, I'm working, I'm doing the best that I can, here's the, the standard answer for you, and you better write it down. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our right steeds are like a polluted garment or like filthy rags. How many of you have towels that you wash your car with? Oh, we don't get to wash our cars in Vegas, but I forgot. How many of you have, have, have towels that you use in the kitchen to wash hands? Would you use that to, to, to eat off of? Would you serve your food on that and eat off of those dirty towels? Probably a bad example, but I think you get the point. That everything that we do before God in order to earn our salvation, God throws it back to us and says, this is filthy. This is worthless. There is only one work, one act that will be acceptable to God. And that is the work, the act, the perfect work and act of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners who could never work enough to earn their salvation before God. Can you imagine Those who are right now doing all that they can, trying the best that they can, who will stand before God and say, look what I did. And God's going to say to them, those are filthy rags and I never knew you. Depart from me, you sinful person. Why? Because they trusted in themselves more than they trusted in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I need not give you a rundown of all religions. I need simply to tell you the gospel. And you need simply to tell people the gospel when you're sharing with people from other religions That you're not saved by yourself. And you never will be. And if you're trusting in yourself, my friend, when you stand before God, you will be sorely and sadly mistaken. The Bible says in Philippians 3, 9, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What do we say when we run into these different people from other religions? Simple. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ alone and his perfect work. Stop working. Stop trying to earn it. Place all of your hope, all of your dreams, all of your efforts on the shoulders, all of your sin on the shoulders of Christ. And you will find him to be a perfect savior. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you in Jesus' name, and I pray that this was a challenging, informative, edifying time of hearing your word and hearing the truth of the gospel. I pray that your people would take what they've heard tonight, and they would run with it and grow from it, Lord. Have your way in their lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.